Hello and welcome to Game Changers with Vicki Abelson. And my guest today is my good friend, Jim Beaver. Hi, Jim. Hiya, Vicki. You know, you look good. You look yeah. relaxed. It's an illusion. It's, <laughs> it's not an illusion. I know that you're good. I, I see your posts and you're, you're happy in love and... and uh, it's a good life. It's I good mean, considering everything that's going on in the world, it's a pretty good life. And I'm imagining it's, it's not a bad time to have been home for a year now that you're like in the midst of this new marriage and this, like the timing must have been pretty good for you guys, huh? Um, I guess, I mean, it's a little hard to, I mean, we're a year and a half into the marriage. It doesn't, doesn't feel all that new anymore, but- uh, Hello and oh, welcome. shoot. I'm sorry, I'm having tech issues. Oh my God, everything's falling, Jim. Um, I have no sound. Are you there? Oh, I, I'm, I'm not talking. Can you hear me? <laughs> I can. Hi, okay. Lord help. I, I, I need a crew. You know, I just, I, I don't like to play the dumb blonde. I'm not a dumb blonde. I, I'm, I'm capable. But man, this is challenging. Have you been doing stuff out of the house at all? Um, out of the house? Well, yeah, I've been I've been working. So. Uh, but I mean, have you recorded at home and done stuff in in, in home studio or anything? You know, every once in a while, I have to have a meeting or a or an audition or something, and I hate this. Uh, um, I really hate auditioning. Uh, I can't believe that you still have to audition. That seems wrong. Well, it's 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 rarer, rarer. Yeah. It's more rare, but it's it still happens sometimes. Usually, if it's something I really want that's really competitive. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but it's I don't I don't usually get those jobs that I have to audition online with. It's I don't know if it's me or if it's. Uh, uh, you know, part of the audition process for me has always been how I, uh, whether or not I was able to engage in the room with the people. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the old style of auditioning, they, uh, you'd do something and then a lot of the times the director would say, you know, can you try it this other way? And, um, uh, and just uh, small talk and the exchange of personalities and all of that is kind of missing. Now, so um, um, I'm not crazy about it. Plus, I have to figure out a way to look good, which is a monumental task. Oh God! Uh, uh, I have to. I, you know, trying to figure out how to light and how to get the sound right so that everybody can hear, and and then you know, just the technical stuff of uploading a video, which is uh, I'm no luddite. I, I I know a little bit about tech but not right. enough that this stuff just flows easily so i'm still stuck at you saying there are still things you don't get i'm like what <laughs> wait a minute i i totally got stopped there and had a trouble hearing anything beyond there are still things you want that you don't get oh god yes oh yeah yeah this I is shocking to me I'll tell you the truth, 90% of the stuff I get 
in the last few years has been a combination, has been one or the other of it's somebody I've worked for before who wants to keep doing it for some reason, or <laughs> it's somebody who knows me from something I've already done and and wants me to work for them. The, there's an awful lot of stuff out there that I would be delighted to get, but you know, for one reason or another, doesn't doesn't come along. And uh, I've I've discovered that the harder I have to work at getting a certain job, the less likely it is I'm going to get it. I think that's true for everybody with everything. Every yeah, yeah. it's right? uh, it's the stuff. At, at this point in life, it it is nice to just to kind of live off the phone ringing every once in a while, rather than that air of desperation that haunted the first decades of, of work. Um, that thing, yeah, that thing, yeah, I understand that thing. So, so Jim, wait, I want to talk how, how uh, talk to you about how you and, and Sarah and Maddie are, have been dealing with the pandemic, because as I was telling you earlier, you know, I have these, we're the COVID crazies, and mm -hmm. I've been in my house for, it'll be a year in, in a couple days, right? That Yeah. So, we, what were you doing when the lights went out? What, what were you in the middle of last March, mid-March? Mid-March, I had just finished the next to the last episode ever of Supernatural. In next to last. The, the next, the, the second from last. Okay, right, that's the next, okay. And, uh, and I was going home, I came home from Vancouver knowing that in 10 days or so, I would go back to shoot the final episode of the series. Right. And then knowing that immediately after that, I was supposed to go to Toronto to do uh, Guillermo del Toro's new movie, Nightmare Alley. And then I was supposed to go to Europe and a bunch of places for fan conventions and public appearances. So you had a whole bunch of stuff lined up. Had a whole bunch lined up. And then, um, and I was terrified because I've taken, I've taken this whole pandemic very seriously. And uh, uh, I, didn't, I didn't like, I didn't even like flying home from Vancouver. Um, what, 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 do you remember what the date of that, what, what date was that? Yeah, do you remember? It was um, March 13th. That uh, last day I was out, it was really scary that day because we already uh, knew what was coming. We knew what was happening, but we didn't know anything good. <laughs> Uh, this is so true. You know, we didn't know if if simply being in the same zip code with someone was going to kill us. And, <laughs> this uh, is so true. Uh, so it was it was very panicky, and I and at the time, all of the things that I had scheduled, nobody was talking about shutting them down. And so I thought, oh my gosh, everybody's dying, and I have to get on a plane in ten days, and 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 go act like nothing's wrong. Okay, so you were supposed to go back to do the last episode of Supernatural? The last episode. Okay, so now you get back on the 13th and LA shut down. We're staying. shut down, but it was another, oh gosh, another four or five days before they told me we weren't going to go back and shoot Supernatural when I thought. And uh, so then I'm thinking, well, I still have to go to Toronto for the Del Toro movie. And then 
as that got closer, it shut down. And then the conventions slowly began to shut down and the personal appearances went away. And while it was extremely tense, mm -hmm. uh, at least I, f I felt better about not having to be out in the world. Um, especially to not have to be out in the world surrounded by large crowds of people. Yeah. And, uh, I look back on it and it seems crazy how long it took people to get it that we needed to stop doing things with lots of people. So uh, you had that sense of urgency right from the top. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, um, uh, and it was, I think a lot of my friends and um, maybe even family, I don't know, were, were not as concerned at first as I was. Right. Uh, you know, I'm, um, uh, look at me, I'm obviously someone who panics easy. <laughs> and, you know, they shouldn't call it a pandemic, they should call it a panic-demic <laughs> because that's how I respond to it. Okay, so you fit well with the COVID crazies. So tell me, what did, what, did, what, did that, what did those first days look like for you? So, okay, so did you really think you might have to get on a plane and go to, the, to, to, to shoot this film? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, I mean, it, it, I had a good week or two of really seriously worrying about, because, you know, at that time, we didn't have any protocols in place. Right. Uh, we weren't even wearing masks yet at yeah. that time. I yeah. mean, I was, but, I was too. Uh, but it, um, uh, there were a lot of people still saying, oh, you know, it's the flu, no big deal. Right. And I thought, what am I going to do if uh, Warner Brothers or Universal or whoever's producing a various project right. decides to just push through? Right. At what point do I say, I can't do this? Right. And uh, fortunately, it didn't come to that. And uh, so the movie shut down, Supernatural shut down, the convention right. shut down. Right. Then it was clear that I was just going to sit home and do nothing for a while. So what did that what did that look like in those early days? Like Jim, were you going? Were you guys going to supermarkets? Were you? What were you? What, what did what did the pandemic look like in the early days for you guys? It was. Well, you you remember there was a lot of hoarding going on. Were you hoarding? No, I was struggling to find necessities. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, I uh, and I was doing things like uh, ordering toilet paper online from places in China. And, <laughs> and, and you know, it just finally arrived a few days ago. And uh, um, so it's, um, uh, I did go out. I did go out shopping, but as rarely as I possibly could. And I was all bundled up with, uh, I mean, I, I had, uh, you know, I slathered myself in hand sanitizer and, uh, um, and I, I would have gone out in a hazmat suit if I had one, but. Uh, hey, tell me something, because I, I still haven't been in a store, especially in those early days when people weren't wearing masks and mm -hmm. you had to worry about yourself. How was it being in a store? Well, I was I was shocked at first. The first time or two I went out, yeah, uh, I found them relatively empty. 
And um, I mean, they didn't have a lot of stuff to sell either, but there right. were, uh, I mean, you couldn't find, uh, uh, you know, antibacterial wipes and you couldn't find right. paper and you couldn't find bleach and a lot of things like that. But I was surprised at, uh, um, at, at how empty some of the stores were. Um, I only once remember ever going to a place where I had to stand in line to get in. And, uh, but also it helps to be a night owl because I was going shopping at 10 o'clock at night. And uh, um, it was, uh, I mean, it was, I was a lot more scared than I am now. Um, well, a lot more scared than I am at this moment because today makes two weeks since I had the second vaccine. Uh, yeah, so, I uh, have full efficacy in myself. It's, it, yeah. it is somewhat of a relief. I'm, uh, but, it is a relief. But at that time, I was, yeah, I was very careful. And, so uh, did you continue to go to stores throughout the pandemic? Yeah, yeah. I just yeah. don't go any more often than I have to. And mm -hmm. sometimes uh, I, I order groceries and have them delivered. Um, usually I go myself, mainly because the order people sometimes, sometimes get the order right. And, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, so uh, you, um, uh, I, I got tired of ordering frozen blueberries and getting, you know, five pounds of blueberry muffins. <laughs> I, I got one of those orders yesterday from Instacart, actually. Um, you, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you a lot of questions because I'm trying to work up even now with two vaccines to get myself to go to my first store. And I'm still kind of, because, well, how do you feel? Okay, what's your feeling about your safety now that they've started to debunk what the CDC said the other day and telling us that the variants might keep us are are you feeding into that fear, or are you are you not? Are you coming from a place of of faith? I'm. Uh, well, I wouldn't call it faith exactly. It's it's. I'm. The way I look at almost anything that might be dangerous is that I I know as much about it as I can find out. And I generally rely upon the most expert people I can listen to. And then I go, I've done what I can. So um, who are you listening to? Like if you listen to Dr. Fauci or Sanjay Gupta, for example, they uh, still have some concerns. Yeah, I, th they have some concerns, but I also know that uh, I've done what I can. I've right. had the vaccination. I'm very careful still. I still wear my mask just even though I'm vaccinated because we don't know for certain what can get passed along or how. Um, and, uh, and so I'm careful for my sake, but mainly for other people's sake. And, um, and I just, I try not to fret about it. Um, the first few weeks of the pandemic were, um, you know, I, I, I sat at home and 
I'm, I'm not really ashamed to say that I was so disturbed by the whole process mm -hmm. that I couldn't eat. And uh, you and do. I, um, you you look skinny, by the way. You look well, very. I'm back up a good 15 pounds from where I was in wow. April. Wow. Uh, yeah, I lost a ton of weight. Wow. Because I just, it, it, was, it was a kind of gnawing uh, concern. And, and at that time, we didn't have any sense of, those of us who believed it was happening, right. had very little sense of a good outcome, probably. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was, I was concerned. I'm old enough that uh, I was in the, I knew I was in the uh, more vulnerable age range for this thing. And I had, uh, I've got plenty of people in my life who also are. Right. And, uh, and people who were at high risk. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it, it didn't help that, um, I remember, I remember sitting around ruminating about this and thinking, well, I wonder who the first high profile person to die from this will be. Uh, and, uh, and, and like a day or two later, John Prine died. And, uh, and I was, and he was a hero of mine and I was devastated. Oh, I thought, well, you know, uh, that's probably just the first domino. Right. Um, not just in famous people, but in people I know or care about, mm -hmm. and um, and it it proved that way to an extent. Not not nearly as many as I feared, but it still you know it still happens. And I've lost family, and uh, uh, it's uh, so I take it very seriously. I always have, but the first few weeks were it wasn't really panic, but it was an ongoing mid-level uh, fear and uh, and I, I, I found it more difficult not impossible but more difficult to function um, I just didn't want to do anything I just wanted to stay in bed and distract myself and I read and watched movies and distracted myself and is that how you got out of it is that how it lifted yeah that and the fact that more and more information became available and we began to, to make some sense of what was most dangerous and what wasn't. And, uh, um, you know, we were, uh, I got to the point where I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't giving the entire house a Silkwood shower every time I got them, went out to get the mail. Oh, uh, yes, that is exactly what the COVID crazies have been, the Silkwood showers it has been. Yeah, it was um, uh, for a time there. If something came into the house, I, uh, you know, I poisoned it. Uh, uh, I still do that. Oh my god! And now I'm I'm much more at ease about that sort Wait, of. Thing. Do you not wipe down your groceries anymore? Do you not? Not really. No. Not really. Um, I mean, it. You know, it depends. I if if somebody delivers something, I try to hold the bag in a different place than he was holding it. Right. Uh, and I wash my hands every time I have a, an outdoor interaction. Um, but uh, I'm not quite as insane as I was. And how about, where was Maddie when, where, where was your daughter when, uh, when COVID hit? 
you know, it was a difficult, a very difficult situation. She had, she had gone back to school in New York in February. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then in, um, uh, right after I got back from Vancouver, so middle of March, right. uh, they, they shut down the school. They said they were going to do it uh, online and she could stay in her dorm. Right. And, and so, okay, we settled into that. And then just four or five days later, they shut down the whole school, including the dorms, and she had to come back home. So, uh, and there were all the worries, not only of rearranging everything in, in our lives here and her life there, right. but also she was going to have to go get on a plane in New York City and, and fly home. And so uh, whatever relief I had gotten knowing I didn't have to go anywhere, all of a sudden came back a little bit because she had to come home. Right. And, um, uh, and we were we were a little concerned, <clears throat> excuse me, a little concerned about uh, how to work that since she was coming home without us knowing for certain what she had been exposed to in school. And right. so um, uh, I got her an apartment here in town and she, and she lived there for the next uh, few months and did her entire next semester and a half online. Wow. Which is a lot of fun when you're, when you've got three dance classes. Oh. Uh, yeah. Cause she's doing musical theater. How the hell did she do? What, what school is she in, Jim? She's at the uh, uh, American Musical and Dramatic Academy in New York. And, Fantastic. Uh, okay. So now how the hell do you, so they literally did the dance classes online? They, they, they online. She was in her apartment and she would play the music and, uh, and try to follow along in her living room. And uh, she, was, uh, she wasn't happy about it. The school wasn't happy about it. I wasn't happy about it. Uh, oh, but, uh, and they kept saying, well, we think in a few weeks we'll be able to start in-person classes again. And, and that didn't happen until October. And, uh, uh, and in fact, it didn't happen until November. She went back to New York in October. And uh, and she's and been she's in the dorm. In classes now. She's still in. She's still in classes now. She just uh, just last week. No, this is Wednesday. She just Monday started her her second year there, which gives you an idea how weird things are. She's starting her second year of college in the middle of March. Right. Um, so, uh, but she's they've got it kind of split now. Uh, the classes. All of her dance classes are now in person, right? But they've they've done a really good job of separating things out so that the students are separated into pods or groups, and they don't really interact with anybody outside of that group, and they can't go to each other's rooms, and uh, uh, you only interact with the people who are in your pod, and they get they get tested frequently, and. Um, and on her own, she got uh, she got her first shot today. Uh, wow! How so, did she how did she manage it? My daughter's actually going next week. How did she manage that? Well, she found she found some loophole for students or something. She she did it on her own. I didn't I didn't have I didn't wow. have any involvement in her getting it. But uh, 
she was able to get the get the first shot today. And wow. A couple of weeks, she'll get the second one, and so I'm very pleased about that. Very yes. Yeah. I, you know, I've got I've got family who are my age who still haven't been able to get it. Yeah. Um, and I assume Sarah is not going to have an opportunity. She's not going to get it for a while because you know I married a child. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, um, you know she's uh, no she's uh, she's she doesn't doesn't qualify yet. So uh, um, I'm. Uh, has I'm Sarah been staying in the? Has have does Sarah go with you when you shop? Does she stay? Does she go out in the world as well? Usually, I mean, we we both shop, uh, mm -hmm. but usually not together. Uh, but that, I mean, not it's not because of any reason. It's just one of us will think, oh, I need to stop at the store and pick up something, and and uh, we'll text the other ones see if they need anything. But it's not planned. Well, so now, because of Sarah's age, is her level of concern different than yours? Would you say? I. She might call me on this, but I think it's a little different. Mm -hmm. I think she's a little less fearful of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I'm just, I'm just guessing. Uh, I know that she, uh, even fairly early on, would occasionally get together with friends in a in a very socially distanced uh, situation at a time when I wasn't willing to, mm -hmm. but, but I, I came around to that. And I, I do get together with people every once in a while. We sit out in the yard and we're- Okay, that's my next question. What, what did, did you have a bubble? Did you have people that were able to come into the house? Did you do that at all? Not really. I mean, the, the few times we had people over, we sat out in the yard mm -hmm. and the, I, you know, we would let people go in to go to the bathroom, uh, but uh, otherwise everybody stayed outside and that's pretty much how it stayed. Um, uh, my best friend, <clears throat> my best friend, Tom, uh, has, uh, he's, he's a teacher and they, for the last year, he's been, he's been working from home and, uh, so he hasn't seen anybody except me. And, uh, and so because he hasn't seen anybody and I've seen virtually nobody and I've been very careful, we have gotten together. Uh, but for the most part, any socializing I've done has been people come over and sit out at, on, in the patio furniture with a good distance between us. And, right. and, uh, uh, and for the most part, nobody comes in the house and I don't go into anybody else's house. So, uh, um, so Jim, now that you've had two vaccines, mm -hmm. what's your comfort level like now? Like, what are you willing to do now that you weren't willing to do before? Do you think, what will you be willing to do since it's brand new? I haven't changed my feelings about it a lot. It's, I feel less fearful for myself and for, my family mm -hmm. in terms of whatever risk I uh, present to them. Uh, I'm, I'm much less fearful about that, but I don't really see any reason to 
severely alter my approach to this. Uh, I'm still going to wear a mask for lots of reasons. One, I don't know, you know, let's say I'm immune to the disease mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping it's true. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know enough science myself right. to know whether I can breathe in the virus and breathe it back out at somebody without, right. even though I wouldn't catch it. So I wear a mask. Right. Um, uh, I, I'm less concerned about being in a crowd in, in the sense of, am I going to catch this thing? But uh, even though I'm less concerned, I'm not changing the way I behave very much. I'm still being careful uh, because, you know, we, we've had nothing but surprises in this. Sometimes the surprises are good, like getting a vaccine much earlier than anybody expected. Absolutely. And sometimes a surprise of, oh, well, this uh, uh, kids aren't immune to this like we thought they were at first. Right. Um, and I don't want to take a chance that, uh, you know, I can be perfectly immune to the virus and still be typhoid Mary. Um, so- Have you outdoor dined through this whole thing? Uh, a little bit, not much. Okay. The first time I dined outdoors was, was at a restaurant that was virtually abandoned. And I had, I mean, I had, I had half a football field to myself, so I wasn't too worried. Oh. Uh, but um, I have not dined indoors, even when it was briefly allowable. Right. Uh, I'm just, I'm not up for that. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm very tuned in to the fact that there are people, people in places of uh, public authority who don't see this the way I see it and who are much more concerned about the economic effect yes. than about, I mean, it's, you know, the fact is uh, we, we're, we're over half a million dead in this country. And the idea that a if those half a million had died in the World Trade Center attack, uh, we would never have stopped doing stuff about it. Uh, we'd be at war with every country on earth and we'd, uh, uh, there are all kinds of actions that we would have taken. Mm -hmm. But because it happened, you know, a few thousand a day, right? Uh, it's it's it, we've somehow become inured to it to a certain extent not all of us by any means but some people have and when and it's it's a real dilemma if people are having to choose between staying healthy and eating uh i understand that but i i believe that a lot of our um government officials far too many maybe not most, but far too many have treated this as primarily an economic issue. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm from Texas and I've got family and friends there and I worry about them, not because I think they're behaving stupidly, 
-hmm. but because I think some of their leaders are behaving stupidly. Did you hear today that some of the um, some of the cities are not listening to the governor and they are going to maintain um, the mask? Uh... I, I I have heard that. I know that most of my family and friends that I've talked to have said that they're not they're not loosening up any. Uh, right. And and but you know I look at it and I think would they have thought so if some of our cousins hadn't died in the last month or two, oh. you know, would, would, oh God, I'm so yeah. sorry, Jim. It's, it's, uh, uh, they're, I've never wanted to be the kind of person who didn't worry about anything until it affected me personally. Right. It's, um, it's important. It's, it's just about as important to me that utter strangers are safe mm -hmm. as it is that my friends and family are safe. Obviously, it's going to be a, it's going to touch me deeper if it's someone I know, but it doesn't mean that I'm oblivious to it simply because it hasn't affected me personally. Um, and I have a hard time understanding how leadership can call itself leadership when they are willing to risk uh, uh, people's lives for economic or political expediency. Um, Jim, you mentioned earlier that you've gone back to work, that you've worked. Mm -hmm. So what has that looked like? Well, it's, um, it's been a mixed blessing. Um, I went back to, in, in September, uh, I went back to Vancouver for my first job since the shutdown. I seem to recall a picture of you on an airplane, um, protected. Yeah. Uh, well, how, how did you handle the air travel? Was it terrifying to get on that plane? It wasn't as terrifying as it was back in April. It, oh, you did it in April? Well, I mean, in, 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 I'm sorry, in March. When I came home from Vancouver in oh. March 2020, Right. Uh, I was sort of panic-stricken. Right. I did not want to be on that airplane. Right. And uh, and I didn't want to be in an airport. Um, I had, uh, I've got a cousin who's a flight attendant and she's been flying all through this. Oh, wow. And she talked to me about her, uh, about what they do and, and the, the protocols that they go through. And I felt much more confident about flying six months later. Is it true that I, okay, from what I hear, being in the cabin on the plane when it's happening, they have filters that are taking the air out and it's a very safe place to be. Is that- I'm much more concerned about being in the airport than I am about being in the airplane. Exactly, so how, do you, how did you keep yourself feeling safe there? Well, in the airport, I just stayed the hell away from everybody mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, even in the airport, now, I, I did very well notice that uh, by the time fall came around, the airports were a lot emptier. Right. Uh, there were far fewer people flying. Right. And there were far fewer people in the airport. Uh, so it was, uh, I, I almost never had to wait in a line at, at the ticket counter mm -hmm. uh, to check in. Um, I had very little trouble finding a seat off to myself, uh, waiting for the plane. 
-hmm. And on a number of the flights, uh, there weren't that many people on the plane. Um, uh, because then they did start to pack them in. I mean, as it got closer to the holidays, they were packing oh, yeah. people. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, I didn't, I didn't experience anything like that. I did. There were some flights where I thought it's really unusual. You know, when I fly for work, uh, uh, our, our uh, lovely union has arranged that uh, we fly uh, business or first class. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's any distance, so uh, uh, I, you know, I don't have to fork over money for that little bit of luxury. Right. Uh, but usually, uh, flights, you know, that that section is usually pretty full, and it hasn't been in a lot of the flights I've been. Uh, so I'm a little calmer about it. I have not yet had to sit next to anyone. Oh wow. And uh, you said when I fly for work, does that mean that you fly for pleasure during? I'm assuming it doesn't mean that you fly for pleasure. In not this. during this, no. As a matter of fact, I was uh, uh, I had planned to go to New York to see my daughter for, uh, over the Christmas holidays, and uh, and I was really dreading it. Um, even though I had flown a couple of times for work, uh, mm -hmm. uh, I was, I just, I, I didn't want to do it, but I was going to because, uh, you know, she's alone in the big city. Right. They, they've eliminated roommates in her dorm situation. So she lives in a room by herself and she can't go visit other. So I thought, you know, I'll go. And then to my shock and act, actual delight, she called me up and said, Dad, I'm worried about you flying. I don't want you to come. Aww. And, uh, Aww. and so I didn't. And uh, so I have, not, I have not gone anywhere for pleasure. Uh, I've only traveled for work. And I've only done that three times. OK, so when you went up to do uh, to Vancouver to do Supernatural, and, and it was your first trip, from what I understand from my son's working on NCIS remotely, anyway, the protocols, did you have like a, a mask wrangler? Were they testing everybody every day? Was, was it high it was, level protocol? Well, the first thing is all three of the jobs I've had since the shutdown first mm -hmm. happened have been in Canada, <clears throat> which means that all three of them required a 14 day quarantine. Oh. So I would have to go up two weeks prior to my work date and sit alone in a hotel room. For wow. But so was everybody else that you were going to be working with. Right, right. Well, I mean, everybody who was from the States. Right, right. Uh, at the time I was first, uh, at the time I was in Vancouver, they, their government had handled this far better than ours had. Mm -hmm. And they were, uh, had a very low infection rate compared to ours. Uh -huh. uh, and so uh, I felt a lot safer being in Vancouver. Mm. Um, uh, there was not, there was not this kind of, uh, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm not going to wear a mask thing that is so popular down here in the cowboy land. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and it made a difference. Uh, uh, people 
their infection rate was so much lower than ours. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, and being the sort of solitary person I can be, uh, I, I certainly enjoy being social, but uh, if you think you're going to punish me by putting me in solitary confinement, you're wrong. As long as as long as long as I got books and the internet, you can lock me away for a month or two. Okay, but now being a total COVID crazy, mm -hmm. how was it? Okay, I'm now in a hotel. I'm now breathing air that's coming through a system. I'm being served by people that are bringing me my food. Was there any level of concern about all of that? Not really. When I went to Vancouver, I I brought. Uh, a, a lot of hand sanitizer with me, and I went over, all over the surfaces. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't actually do that the next couple of trips, uh, but the um, the places I stayed had uh, protocols of their own, and they were doing deep cleanings every time somebody left. Uh huh. So uh, no, I didn't worry about it. Um, when they brought my groceries. Uh, uh, they just knocked on the door and left them outside the door. Uh, I didn't, um, uh, with the possible exception of looking out the window and seeing somebody on the street, I didn't see anybody for the two weeks I was in Portland. Wow. Mm -hmm. Until near the end, and near the end of each one, they would send somebody over, send a nurse over to test me. Um, and there was, uh, and then there was testing on the set. Right. Uh, every day. And uh, it was um, the different jobs were, they handled it a little differently, each job. But uh, the more I worked, uh -huh. uh, I mean, the, the, they were more stringent each job I went on. Oh, wow. Yeah. It, uh, they got more and more careful. I don't know if that's coincidence because they were all different companies. Right. And the different studios have their own uh, protocols um, and handle it a little differently. But also, Canada got stricter. Yes. Uh, each time I went back, it was a little more stringent. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to, uh, uh, each trip, I had to get a, 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 a negative COVID test before I was allowed to come. Right. Uh, and then each trip I had to have a negative COVID test uh, right before I started work mm -hmm. at the end of my quarantine. But this third time I was up, I was up just a, a couple of three weeks ago for the boys. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had to have three negative COVID tests before I could get on the plane. And uh, one of them was for the Canadian government and two of them were for the, for the studio. Wow. And then I had to have another COVID test when I landed in Toronto. I got it at the airport. Wow. And, uh, and then they have, Canada has a, a, a setup where you have to check in uh, on an app every day and let them know you have no symptoms or, uh, or whatever your situation is. Uh -huh. And, um, and then uh, I got tested every day I was in Toronto, uh, uh, even after the quarantine. So yeah, I got more stringent. And 
I had to have a negative test before I could get on the plane to come back to Los Angeles. So uh, it got more and more stringent. And I, you know, I'm sure it's costing people millions to do all that, but I think it's a good idea. Did it affect how you felt about the work itself? I mean, I would imagine the creative process on a set when there's so much of this protocol going on, did it impact creativity at all? Um, I would say that the only time it impacted creativity at all was when I was working on Nightmare Alley, the Del Toro film. Mm -hmm. We were shooting outdoors. Mm -hmm. uh, I had uh, a makeup thing. Everybody wore masks when we weren't actually shooting. Right. Uh, I mean, the actors were all standing around uh, uh, with masks on, but I had a makeup thing that prevented me from wearing a cloth mask. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, I, they came up with this face shield that, uh, no, it didn't come down. It, it, I wore it around my neck like a collar and it stood up in front of my face. Huh. It was just a big plastic shield. Uh-huh. But the problem was it was about 11 degrees outside. And when I would have to put this on whenever they call cut. But as soon as I put it on, it would start fogging up and I couldn't see anything. Oh. And, uh, uh, and it was, obviously I didn't wear it while we were actually shooting. Right. But I had to wear it during rehearsal. And that was difficult because it was hard to hit my marks and hard to hard to see exactly where I was supposed to be. It was a little thing. Yeah. If I had not had this weird makeup situation, I, I would have just had a cloth mask and it would have been fine. Um, it still would have been 11 degrees and we all would have been shivering. But uh, yeah. but that that part had nothing to do with COVID. Right. Um, I will give a shout out here to Rooney Mara, who there was, I mean, it's an all-star cast and most of them were in my scenes, but Rooney Mara was in a two-piece uh, uh, kind of circus performer outfit. And we were all oh. freezing in oh. regular clothes and she never, never made a peep about the fact that she was in what was essentially a bikini. Oh my god. So I, I don't I don't know her. I didn't have more than five words with her, but uh, she's a real trooper. Uh, speaking of shout outs, Will Harris is telling me to say hello to you. Oh tell him to drop dead. <laughs> By the way, everybody if you have questions for Jim. I'm I'm trying to glance down discreetly in between this because we're gonna talk about more than COVID. Thank you for indulging me in all of that, but it's like, that's who we are. We're the COVID crazy. We want to know how everybody's handling this. Let me be clear here. Will Harris is one of the sweetest guys on earth and I'm just pulling his leg. So yeah, I, 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 I think we, I got that and I was okay. pretty sure Will did too. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you clarified though. So Jim, let's talk about, let's talk about Jim Beaver now and, and oh, get this COVID craziness for a bit. I, you know, I've gotten to know you. I've been blessed to get to know you over the years. You know, I was looking, my God, you were in my living room. It's almost 10 years ago already. It's hard. It, wow. when, when did life's that way, come, 11 years. When did life's that way come out? It's like 11 years, I'm thinking. It came out in 2009. 
hello, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. Wow. So it's wow. been a long time. Yeah. And um, uh, your life has changed instrumentally in that time that I've known you. Um, and I've gotten to, to hear your story a couple of times, but a lot of the people who are on here haven't had haven't had the pleasure of that. So I wanted to go back over some things we've talked about in the okay. past, just because you have a great story. You're a great storyteller. There are things about your story that a lot of people don't know. A lot of people don't know that writing is, is a huge part of your career. And the fact that you wrote for Alfred Hitchcock Presents, the, the remake of that is wild. It's the remake, not the original. Obviously, too young for, way too young for the original. Yeah, I wrote for the show when I was seven. You were a, an award winner for that as well, as I recall. I was an award nominee, and it's great to be nominated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. But I mean, okay, so how did, all right, and you, you've been a Marine. I mean, you've had a lot of lives before, as I said in the, in the post, you've had more lives than a cat. Um, let's go back. So when you're a little kid, What's the first thing you wanted of all the things that you've wait, was it was it an athlete the first dream? I'm trying to no. Well, no, you know, you were you were not athletic at all. Wait, I'm getting this all wrong. You were not athletic at all. I'm getting, I, I'm sure there was a time when I thought I'd like to be a pro baseball player. Okay. Uh, and I went out for a lot of athletics, but Oh, I, you did. Okay. I wasn't crazy. I was utterly unqualified for any of them. But, um, uh, you know, they're still waiting for me to finish the, to cross the finish line in my last track meet. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, I think the, I, I remember I, in high school, I had some vague notion of someday becoming a stuntman, but it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't a terribly serious idea. Okay. I think the first time I had a serious idea of what I wanted to do was um, probably in my junior or senior year, and I, I wanted to be a writer. Um, what, I, what was that point? Was your family was your family creative? Uh, not exactly. Okay. No, uh, I mean in the sense that. Uh, well, my dad was a minister and, and he wrote wonderful sermons every week, mm -hmm. but I, I never heard of him writing or painting or drawing or anything like that. Uh, my that's mother. Very, that's very creative and performing being a minute. Yeah. 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 But mm -hmm. I mean, there were no, there were no musicians in my family, really. I mean, I, I played trumpet and, and, but. Again, I wasn't terribly great at it, but uh, uh, but I was good enough to be in the band mm -hmm. in, uh, in high school. But um, there wasn't, when I look back, I don't see a lot of overt creativity in the sense that we, artistic creativity. What, what sparked your interest in writing? Do you know? Do you remember? Well, I had done a little in, in, um, high school, mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, class assignments, you know, uh, uh, write a paragraph about such and such. And I ended up writing a, you know, two or three page adventure story star starring all of my friends. And uh, <laughs> I, I 
don't know if it was very good, but uh, most of them died falling into helicopter planes and <laughs> like that. Um, and and my a cup I did write a couple of short stories that got published in the high school annual or something. And, right. uh, but it, it that wasn't it didn't have anything to do with what I wanted to do for a living. Um, but it, my, my senior year of high school, uh -huh. uh, I read a book. It was the autobiography of the actor Sterling Hayden. Um, it's called Wanderer. Mm -hmm. And it was then and still is my favorite nonfiction book. I've read it many times. Wow. And, and it had very little to do with his acting career. Uh, it had to do with his life as, uh, uh, as, as a sea captain and as uh, an adventurer and, and as a writer. And his writing was so evocative and so self-revelatory and so uh, judgmental about himself. Uh, I, I, I was just enraptured by it. Um, uh, he was a very poetic writer and and he wrote about running away to sea as a young man and uh and how that that continued to call to him and uh and i began to imagine myself in a very romantic kind of way emulating him and uh i remember you know they asked in my senior year what my goals for the future were for the yearbook. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm going to buy a schooner and sail around the world writing. And uh, I, uh, I, I never sailed around the world and I never bought a schooner, but <laughs> I've written a lot. Uh, and I think, I think I have to, uh, uh, I have to credit Sterling Hayden for that. Uh, I didn't end up writing the kind of things he did. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, the image of him as a writer and as a person who uh, really kind of took on the world uh, has stayed with me as, as something I uh, would have liked to have emulated and have in some ways. Um, so how did it practically had it happen? Because I, you're still in high school then. Well, you were in the service. So how, how did things kind I, of? I also I, I was also deeply deeply interested in film history, and uh, and and in the lives of the people who worked in the film industry, actors and directors, and and I I began thinking in terms of writing that sort of material. Uh, it was just kind of floating in my head. And then I got out of high school and I went straight into the Marine Corps and uh, um, spent the next three years, uh, you know, doing Marine stuff. Well, and, why, uh, why were you in the Marines, Jim? Well, probably just because among my friends growing up, I was kind of the runt of the litter and uh, they were all... All of my closest friends were a year older than me, and they all graduated a year ahead of me. And uh, almost as a group, they went into the Marines together and spent the next year telling me 
whatever you do, don't join the Marines. Uh, and and I, I think I felt like they thought I couldn't hack it. And I was going to show them I could. And, uh, uh, and so uh, right after I got out of high school, I, uh, uh, I joined up too. And, uh, and then, you know, about 15 or 20 seconds into boot camp, I understood why they had warned me not to. Um, <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, the next 12 weeks were the first hour of Full Metal Jacket. Uh, Wait, where were you stationed? Uh, I, I did boot camp in San Diego. Well, that's a pretty cushy place to do boot camp, I would think, no? You haven't been through Marine Corps boot camp in San Diego. <laughs> No. Uh, uh, it's a sure it doesn't snow on you, but when they're you know beating you or uh, uh, ripping you a new one, uh, but uh, that's about as cushy as it gets. It doesn't snow. God. But you know, it was it was the hardest thing I've uh, ever uh, put myself through. And, uh, and I'm proud of having done it. It's not something I would want to do again, um, but. What was, your, what was your job in the Marine? What did you do? Um, well, I was, I was trained as a, a radio technician, mm -hmm. and, uh, but I never really worked in that. I operated a radio in Vietnam for a while. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, they spent, they spent a good year or so training me to do a job that I was never good enough to do uh, uh, because I, I don't know how it is nowadays, but in those days, um, uh, nobody seemed to flunk out of electronic school. Uh, <laughs> I just got the lowest grade, but the lowest grade was always passing. And um, I didn't get the lowest grade. I got the next to the lowest grade. <laughs> uh, I graduated 24th in a class of 25. Is, and that, we all said, hmm? is that true? You're not yeah. exaggerating? Oh, I was terrible. See, when you, when, you, when you go to the service, they do these aptitude tests to find out what you're best suited for. Right. And, uh, uh, and I, I was barely qualified to exist as a human in, in anything scientific or mathematical. Uh, I had over the top scores in language skills. And I had studied German for a couple of years in high school. And, and I thought, well, great, I, I speak German. I, I, with a little luck, they'll send me to, to Germany. Uh -huh. But they don't have a lot of Marines in Germany. That's pretty much the Army's bailiwick. Yeah, yeah. And so, but I did apply for language school. I, I hoped, you know, at the very least, uh, they'd send me to a Vietnamese language school. Uh, and I scored very high on the language test. Uh, wow. And so, you know, there's an old cartoon uh, in the Marine Corps magazine, Leatherneck, that shows these two um, uh, Marine Corps administrators uh, sorting out people's jobs and one of them says um or remind me which bakery school do we send nuclear physicists to 
and that's kind of how it worked out for me. Uh, the thing I was least qualified for was electronic school, and that's where I went. And uh, uh, and so I was terrible at it. And uh, I, I just it's it's almost all math, and I didn't understand it. And uh, but then I graduated from electronics school and went out into the world and they very quickly in the real world of the Marine Corps discovered that I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so uh, they arranged for me not to do it. <clears throat> and so I, uh, I did, a, I, I cleaned a lot of radios. I stacked a lot of radios. I, uh, <clears throat> uh, I, you know, and then, and then when I went to Vietnam, I operated the radio and, uh, uh, and then for a time, I, uh, they did find a slot that, that worked well for me. And I was, uh, I was in charge of radio supplies for communications company. And, uh, and I was OCD enough that I could, uh, I could manage the supplies and make sure we had everything we were supposed to have. And, and, um, it wasn't fun, but it was, it was, it was certainly better than operating a radio mm -hmm. and, um, and that's what I did for my three years of active duty. And, okay, so you get so you get out of this illustrious career in the Marines, and, and you are prepared to not be an electrical engineer. So, yeah. so what'd you do? I got a job making Fritos. My favorite snack food. My second favorite snack food. Really? Uh, you, you wouldn't if you'd watch me make them. <clears throat> uh, but. Uh, yeah, I, I only had that job for a week, but it's still um, uh, because it didn't suit me and I didn't suit it. Um, uh -huh. I didn't, uh, I don't want to get sued by the Frito company, but it was not the most pleasant job I ever had. So um, okay. I didn't actually make Fritos. I made something called Munchos. Uh, I remember Munchos. Munchos were, Munchos were the, uh, the, uh, idiot cousin of Fritos. <laughs> so, okay, so that didn't work out so well. So and then, I, and then I went back to college. Okay. I went, I went to college. I say I went back. I had had <clears throat> um, my senior year of high school. I, I took a few college courses at the same time. Mm -hmm. So uh, I resumed college. Uh, and uh, you go to school? Uh, my first uh, my first school out of the Marine Corps was Oklahoma Christian uh, outside Oklahoma City. And um, I, I went there mainly because my cousin was there and he wanted me to room with him. And my dad said that he would pay for it if I went to a church college. <clears throat> so I went there for a year and uh, that's where I got involved in theater. Um, and uh, they didn't have any courses in film history. So I signed up for theater courses because I thought it was kind of close. Right. And it might be fun. I don't know. And uh, I discovered it was fun. Uh, I discovered it was the most fun thing I'd ever done in my life. Is that the first time that you performed or had you done it in high school? I didn't do any in high school. I, I had done a couple of plays in elementary school. Okay. And uh, uh, But they were not real career starters. Okay, wait, do you remember your first role and the first thing you ever said on stage? Well, they weren't the same thing. Oh, uh, 
my, my first role, I played a court jester in Sleeping Beauty. Okay, no lines. And I had no lines. <laughs> my second play, I don't know, I don't know the name of it. I think it was something a teacher wrote. Oh. It was a historical pageant, oh, but my. I was the MC and I had a zillion lines. Wow. Uh, and somewhere there's a horrible photo of me in my little brown suit with eyeshadow uh, standing on the corner of the stage, spouting off about history that I knew nothing about. Uh, so now you're in college. Do you remember what the first audition and the first role that you won? And, and what, what, what really got me involved in the theater company as an actor, Yeah, uh, I had just planned on taking theater history courses, things like that. Right. Um, uh, a guy in my dorm needed a partner for his audition for the, the, the campus mm -hmm. uh, players. And he asked me if I would do the other part in a, an audition scene with him. Mm -hmm. We did a scene from uh, Of Mice and Men, and, uh, and it seemed to go well, and they, uh, they asked me to join. And uh, so I, sure, why not? Uh, it did seem like it might be fun. I had, it, it had crossed my mind at some point uh, here and there in my life to- uh, Did your friend get in? Two? I don't remember. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't. I I know he didn't become active. He may have been accepted, but he didn't become active. Okay. He, he's doing life in the New Mexico pen now, so uh, uh, his acting career went south pretty quickly. Um, wow! But look what he did for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, um, and then I got a very small part in the first production of the year, which was. The Miracle Worker, uh -huh. and um, I had the first lines in the play. Uh, I had six lines altogether. That was back when I counted such things. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I had the first lines in the play, and uh, uh, I I remember being on the set uh, in pitch black with the curtain down. It was they actually had a curtain. Right. Curtain went up and it was utter blackness and I couldn't see anybody, but I could feel them breathing. And I had this thought go through my head. The play doesn't start until I talk. And the sense of power that rushed through me wow. was so intense. And I said my first line, she'll live. And the play started. And and I remember thinking, uh, okay, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. <laughs> and, uh, and it turned out to be true. It turned out to be true. So how did you go from, okay, so you were doing some, but how did it go from performing in school, in, in college plays to you, you took a, you became a writer? Well, um, all during college, uh, I was writing, um, uh, I began writing, uh, uh, biographical stuff on film history. Um, I, uh, 
I wrote my first book while I was in college, uh, which was a uh, 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 biographical book on uh, the actor John Garfield. And uh, um, I, I think I finished that while I was in college, but it was published not long after I got out of college. Wow. And uh, well, I was doing that instead of turning in assignments. So, <laughs> And I and I I started writing for uh, the magazine Films and Review, which is uh, the National Board of Reviews magazine, mm -hmm. and they I wrote a lot of biographical pieces for them uh, about old Hollywood. And you're doing that while you're performing in plays. I'm doing plays. I'm uh, and I'm uh, and then uh, my second or third year of college, I started writing plays. And um, uh, and a couple of them were performed uh, while I was in college, and uh, but by you know very quickly in my first year of college out of the Marines, I had decided that I was going to be an actor, and uh, and the writing was the film history writing was because I love it. By the way, someone's asking if they can still get that book on on John Garfield. Is it? Is it? Yeah, you could probably find it in you know uh, online used bookstores. I see it show up every once in a while. <clears throat> I mean, it. I wouldn't pay a lot for it, but <laughs> uh, but you know whether you pay a lot or a little, it. it I don't get anything from it, so uh, uh, you know use your own judgment. Uh, uh, it's not a great book, but it's. I, I, John Garfield's daughter told me it was her favorite book about her father. So I will. That's I will, pretty wonderful, Jim. Well, you know, maybe uh, I'm, I'm proud to have heard that from her. That's, uh, even that's though I, I look at the book and I go, oh, I could have done a lot better than this. Mm -hmm. uh, but hey, you know, uh, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, ex I'll accept credit for the fact that I wrote a book while I was in college. Um, I think that deserves a lot of credit. Who didn't read a book in college. So, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, one that got published and that somebody gave you that his daughter, I'm sorry, but that's, that's a huge accomplishment. Jim. I think, it, you know. Soon I'm going to have to bring up the George Reeves story because we're going to have to talk about things that are a little more arduous for you and not quite so uh, smooth. It didn't happen as quickly. Uh, and uh, but do uh, you want to go into that now or? Yeah, well, I just brought it up. So yeah, I, because oh. it's just such an amazing story that you got to tell it. Well, uh, I had even as a kid, I had always been fascinated with the actor George Reeves, who had played Superman on television in the 1950s. Um, I, and, and I'm sure like a lot of uh, people who were fascinated by him, a large part of it was because of the um, lack of clarity uh, revolving around his death. Um, but also a lot of it was simply that he was, for a lot of kids in my generation, he was the role model, uh, uh, the um uh, celebrity icon that meant something to us. Uh, I mean, between him and Clayton Moore as the Lone Ranger, uh, 
uh, he had most kids, certainly most boys, and probably a lot of girls too, pretty much covered in the uh, 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 celebrity idolatry department. <clears throat> Uh, our parents may not have known who these guys were, but we knew who they were. Oh, Superman was everything. Yes, yeah, and uh, and he had a he had a quality that even as a kid I recognized as as rather special, not necessarily uh, as as a, 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 a genius actor, but he had a quality that came across through the camera to to the kids that was incredibly engaging and uh wasn't and, it like that he was before i knew what sexy was mm -hmm. i didn't i was just a little kid but he, he you know i guess it's charisma he had he was yeah. so dynamic and charismatic yeah he was extremely charismatic on that show mm -hmm. uh, uh it didn't necessarily carry over onto other roles he had but in that role i mean it was a case of the right man and the right role coming together and uh but i didn't give much thought to that after i was grown but then as i became more and more interested in writing film history and writing biographies of uh performers and directors i kept coming back to him in my head as a possible subject someday mm. uh, particularly because there was a little bit of a mystery it seemed uh, uh, surrounding him and and then in uh, I guess it was 1978 my editor at Films and Review wait, wait, excuse me what year did George Reeves die 1959 okay uh, he died at 45 in 1959 mm -hmm. and uh, so in 78 my editor asked me if I would be interested in doing an article on him uh, because there had been a lot of requests from readers for such an article. And I said, absolutely, you got the right guy here. Um, and uh, so I started digging. And the more I dug, the more I became interested in the story, not just for the idea of solving a mystery, right? Uh, which is of much less interest to me than the rest of it. But uh, I just got, I got fascinated by the story of a guy who, uh, if you look at it one way, got everything he ever dreamed of. But if you look at it another way, getting what he dreamed of really ruined everything for him. And uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that kind of dichotomy fascinated me and i was also fascinated by the fact that he was a guy who became world famous without a lot of the success that normally goes with that for an actor right. uh, he never got rich he never got powerful in the industry mm -hmm. uh, a clark gable or an errol flynn becomes world famous and can say what their next movie is going to be and lives in a mansion right. and uh is uh you know the the a figure who can make his own life work uh to a certain extent uh reeves was never that he was right. uh, he was wildly popular without ever making a lot of money at it 
and without. Well, it also wasn't his biggest fan base a bunch of kids like us? Or like, yeah, yeah. Um, he, uh, you know, he was in a lot of movies. He was in Gone with the Wind and From Here to Eternity, but he had relatively small parts in those. And they didn't, they never really, he never really had a chance to break out of small supporting roles. Uh, right. and Superman came along and Superman came along and, you know, uh, paid him a couple of thousand bucks an episode. Uh, and he only worked about eight, 10 weeks a year. Uh, so the rest of the time, he was free to do other things, but nobody would hire him. Now, how many years did Superman, did he, how, how long was that? It, well, they shot it from 51 to uh, 57. And. Uh, um, wow, so he didn't live long after no. it. And he didn't work again after it. He he wow. the last two years of his life he he had no work at all, because wow. you know things are a lot different nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a Tom Hiddleston can play Loki in a whole bunch of Marvel movies and then turn around and uh, do a serious drama, right. and nobody thinks twice about it. Right. But in the fifties, if you were Superman, that's all they let you do. Right. Uh, because they felt like it's going to be too distracting, um, which was probably baloney, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, the options just weren't there. Uh -huh. So I'm I'm writing this article and I'm and I'm digging more and more into his story and where he came from and how he got to where he was and what he wanted versus what he got, and also the fact that. Uh, he was a working actor who, as I said, never achieved great success. Uh, he was kind of a, a workman. Mm -hmm. And it, and I, I, the more I worked as an actor, uh, initially just doing theater around the country, but uh, as I began to break into television and film a little bit, I began to identify with him a lot more. Uh, because I was going through a lot of similar things, the kind of guy who it didn't matter how famous he was as Superman, he still had to audition for things. Right. Still, for the most part, didn't get them, which was a place I could very much identify with, except for the fame part. Okay, so so what, what were those early roles? So while you're writing this, what are those early roles that you're, so you're doing theater around the country. Uh, what kind of, how did you break into film and TV? What was the beginning of that for you? Well, I had done, I did five seasons with the Dallas Shakespeare Festival, just doing Shakespeare and, and making a lot of contacts in New York theater uh, because a lot of the, the, the more successful and larger roles were cast out of New York. And right. The were out of New York. And I, uh, uh, I was continuing to write plays, which I had started doing in college. Mm -hmm. And because I had some of these connections through the Dallas Shakespeare Festival, uh, my plays began to get read uh, different places. And um, I was commissioned to write several plays for Actors Theater of Louisville. And, uh, and that got me a representation from ICM in New York. And uh, um, 
none of which really did me much good other than I seemed to get a lot of respect for my writing. Um, there weren't a lot of places doing my plays. Louisville did some, but uh, it wasn't spreading beyond that. A um, lot of my plays. So you were writing a lot. Well, in those yeah. days, a fairly large amount. Mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, I tended to shoot myself in the foot by writing plays for 29 men and three women. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and a Western at that. Uh, but, uh, eventually, I, I had come out to Los Angeles in 83 to work on the book I was still working on, on George Reeves. Mm -hmm. But while I was out here, someone read one of my plays and decided she wanted to produce it. A wonderful actress, producer named Karen Kandasian uh, read the play. She took it to Theater West here in LA and uh, turned it over to the artistic director there, Clyde Ventura, who wanted to produce it. And together they produced it at Theater West and it was a really nice, successful production that got a lot of acclaim, won a lot of awards, and it got me a big agent writing television. Wow. And, uh, and so I, I went from not being able to get a job as an actor, not being able to get any of my plays produced with any frequency, to being not only a television writer, but a television writer with a niche because this was the mid 1980s and television and films were just starting to really pay attention to the Vietnam War. Uh -huh. and, uh, and they were really hungry for writers who were Vietnam vets. Wow. And I fell into that category. Wow. And so I started getting hired left and right to write things with a Vietnam focus. And uh, wow, I wrote for the HBO series, Vietnam War Story. I wrote for um, CBS series, Tour of Duty, which was about Vietnam. And, uh, and, and so things just kind of began to snowball for me as a writer. I was, I was happy because for the first time in my life, I was making money, I right. was making decent living. Uh, a very decent living for a guy who, you know, had managed to pull in three or four thousand dollars a year before. That. <laughs> uh, uh, all of a sudden, I I was I was paying my bills and and uh, uh, could, could manage to live on my own without worrying about where I was going to eat or sleep. Uh -huh. And uh, and then uh, the 1998 writer strike happened. And it completely gutted the freelance television market. Um, first of all, we went five months with none of us being able to, to work. And then once the strike was over, um, television just changed and they stopped uh, almost completely using uh, freelance writers. It was all staff writers. And they would, they would staff large enough that the staff could handle everything and they didn't need to farm out any scripts. 
Wow. Exactly how I had made my living on farmed out scripts. I was never a staff writer. I didn't want to be a staff writer because it meant I couldn't act. And that was always my question. Were you acting through the strike, through the writer's strike? Uh, I don't recall if I was, I wasn't doing much of anything because I didn't, I didn't have, uh, I didn't have any connection. I didn't have an agent. Uh, I had a big agent as a writer and that's, Jim, that didn't care. Like if you, when you were writing those shows, you were, you, you couldn't like. Well, not really. I mean, I was with a huge agency, the old right. artists mm -hmm. uh, before they merged with William Morris, mm -hmm. but they were, they were big agencies within the big agency. Right. Literary side. Right. Music side. There was the theatrical talent side. And there wasn't a lot of crossover. Right, right. right. Crossover is exactly what ended up happening to right. me. Because during this writer's strike, mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't, I, I mean, I could certainly write spec scripts. Uh -huh. uh, but, which is what everybody in town was doing. Right. You couldn't pitch them. Right. Couldn't, you couldn't take a job from anybody. Nobody could offer you a job. And so I spent a lot of time hanging around my literary agent's office in Century City, just shooting the breeze. And uh, I would come up and spend a couple of hours talking to my agent because he couldn't do anything. <laughs> he couldn't pitch anybody. He couldn't pitch his clients. Right. And we would talk and he would just, you know, I learned a lot from it. And, uh, and one day I was shooting the breeze with him in his office. And I finally said, well, I'm going to get out of here and beat the traffic home. Mm -hmm. And he walked me to the door as he, as we got to the door, a woman was passing in the hall and he said, Oh, Eileen, uh, come here. I want you to meet somebody. And, uh, he said, this is Jim Beaver. He's one of our literary clients here. He said, this is Eileen Feldman. She's one of the theatrical talent agents here. And she said, oh, hi, it's nice to meet you. Are you an actor? And I said, yeah. She said, are you represented? And I said, no. She said, well, this may sound weird, but you might be right for this part in this picture Norman Jewison is casting. Uh, I have goosebumps because I know this story, but come yeah. And she said, uh, she said, I have a client who, who has an appointment to meet with Norman, Norman, <laughs> uh, tomorrow, but he's just booked another job that conflicts. So, and this is how powerful the agency is because most of them can't do this. She right. said, would you be all right if I stuck you into his appointment slot? Wow. Now she doesn't know me from anybody. Wow. This is just a face that appeared in front of her. Wow. And she thought maybe I was an actor and I kind of looked right. And I'm, when I look back on this, and I look back, I mean, this agency represented Bruce Willis and Ed Harris and Jeff Bridges. And, and wow. I'm thinking it's a Norman Jewison picture. Those guys would work craft service to be in a Norman Jewison picture. Yeah. And she's looking at me like, can I give you this audition? Uh, 
because I don't want to lose the slot. Wow. And I said, sure. And the next day I went in and I'm sitting in the waiting room and I'm the only person there I never heard of. <laughs> and and I, I go in to meet Norman. I've read the script. I've got the, I've got the audition material. It's just him and wow. an assistant that I can read with, not even uh -huh. a casting director. And, but he said, do you have any questions before we start? Uh -huh. I said, well, I read the script and there's a scene where uh, there's a, a veterans dance coming up. This, it takes place, uh, it's about Vietnam veterans and it takes place years after the war. And it's about the aftermath and the effects of the war on these. Now, how fortuitous is that right there? I mean, that's cra that's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I said, there's a scene where a guy's pinning photos of the guys back when they were in Vietnam on the bulletin board. Mm -hmm. And I said, is this the kind of photo you had in mind? And I held up a picture of me in Vietnam. And Norman bless his heart, he looked at it and he went, okay. <laughs> and then he said, would you like to read? And I read the scene and he was very nice and I left. And that night the agent called and said, uh, well, this is impossible, but he really liked you and <laughs> there's a chance you might get this thing. Uh, she said, don't get your hopes up. It's very unlikely, uh, but we'll know in a couple of weeks. And the next day she called and said, I don't believe it. You got the part. And it was a major role in a film called In Country. And when the veterans dance sequence starts, full frame on screen is that photo of me in Vietnam. Oh my God. So uh, I, you know, I think I'm pretty good at what I do, but the fact is you wouldn't be talking to me here if I hadn't walked out of my literary agent's office at the exact moment I did. And if Eileen Feldman hadn't been walking down the hall. I don't believe in accidents or mistakes. Do you, do you believe in, in destiny? I believe in being ready when the knock comes on the door. I don't believe anything is guaranteed to anybody. Mm -hmm. I know a thousand actors who are as good or better than I am, who have never gotten a job that paid them anything. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I don't think I was destined. I think I was ready. You were prepared. What do they say? Luck is preparedness meets opportunity, which I guess. I'm not a sweat. Um, it's, I mean, the fact is, uh, I've always thought or tried to think outside the box. Mm -hmm. um, I used to get auditions. When I first got to LA, I worked for a time as a messenger back before fax machines and email, mm -hmm. when every script, every contract had to be delivered right. in, by hand. Right. 
and I rode my motorcycle all over Los Angeles County. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I saw Deborah Winger in her bathrobe as I handed her a script. And, uh, uh, and, and I was at studios a lot. And I would, whenever I would go to a studio to make a delivery, mm -hmm. uh, in my backpack, I had a headshot and a resume, and I would attach little notes to it, to them, and it would say, this is the guy I was telling you about uh, that I saw in that play. He's terrific. You really ought to uh, take a look. And I would sign it Clint, <laughs> Tom, or Cage. And, and I would drop them on the floor in the hall outside offices. Wow. And I would get called in. Oh, my God. I would get auditions. And uh, I've never believed in uh, <laughs> sitting there and waiting mm. for something to happen for me. Did you ever get busted doing that? Nope. Nope. Mm -hmm. Never did. I mean, I'm sure 90% of them went in the trash, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, but uh, you know, ninety percent of them, the ones that come in from agents end up in the trash. So uh, I figured, uh, you know, I I, be I I believe in adhering to the rules, but I also believe in working outside the box when you can. So. Um, so and you were creating your own luck, your own. So how? Well, that's why I. That's why I went into Norman's office for that audition with the photograph of me from Vietnam. It, I just thought, how do, how do I make, I don't know that I can act better than anybody else that's coming in here. I can't do anything about my face. It is what it is. Uh, I'm going to act as well as I can. Mm -hmm. Is there a way of making him understand that I have a deeper connection than maybe somebody else who's coming in. Have you used that, that has that worked for you in other audition situations? Have you yeah. been able, like, can you give us another example of one? I did a movie with Paul Walker and Steve Zahn called Joyride. Mm -hmm. uh, I played a sheriff from Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And when I went into the audition, uh, and met the, met the director, uh, John Dahl. Uh, we did a little chat and uh, I said, uh, I said, by the way, I'm from Wyoming and uh, I, I know guys like this, you know? It wasn't much. It wasn't the equivalent of a picture of me in Vietnam. Right, right. I, I, I said, I'm, I'm from Wyoming. I, uh, uh, I know all about these guys mm -hmm. and I ended up getting the part for whatever reason. And on the DVD release, on the director's commentary on the film, when my scene comes up, he says, we were really lucky. This guy playing the sheriff here is really from Wyoming. Well, I was born in Wyoming and moved to Texas when I was six months old. <laughs> but I thought 
the sheriffs from Wyoming make a link, create a link. Now, I might have gotten the part anyway, mm -hmm. but just the fact that he mentioned it in the commentary on the DVD three years later, whatever it was, makes me think that it had some impact. Absolutely. You can't, you got to be as good as you can be. You got to be as ready as you possibly can be, but you cannot ignore if you've got a connection, but it's got to be a real one. I don't mean real like I should have really been from Wyoming. I am from Wyoming. I was born there. Right. But what I mean is you don't fake it. Well, you faked a little bit, you know, because you did the something out. You know, this is uh, I, I recommend this is the guy I was telling you about or whatever. Yeah. You did a yeah. little bit of that. Absolutely. But I don't go into uh, to read for the part of uh, a Swedish sailor and tell them I'm Swedish and speak fluent Swedish. <laughs> because that kind of outside the box will get you outside the studio. Yes. So. Uh, Great move. <laughs> but, you know, they don't know whether it was Clint Eastwood who wrote that little note or if it right. was Clint Mataska from <laughs> Long Island City. Uh, didn't say you were Clint Eastwood. You have an out. I got you. <laughs> it's uh, uh, I don't mind being a little misleading if it if it feeds my face. Uh, I love it. But I don't. So Jim, I won't lie. So that that part in the Norman Jewison film, how how did wh where did the first success? Where did it start to happen for you? Well, here was here was the interesting thing about that. I got the part. It was a good part. It was main title billing. It was everything I dreamed of. I'm working with wonderful people, Bruce Willis and Joan Allen and uh, Emily Lloyd. And, and it's Norman Jewison. You know, it's, it's one of the great directors of the last half century. And, uh, uh, and I'm ecstatic about it. And I, my agent or the, the agent calls up to tell me I've got the part. And mm -hmm. I said, I, you know, we, we cavelled a little bit. And then uh, I said, so does this mean I'm represented by you guys? And she said, oh, no, 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 you're, you're not a client. We, you know, we, <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great job. We're very happy for you, but we're not signing you. And, wow. uh, and I was like, oh, okay. So uh, I had about three months before we started shooting. And just, you know, nothing happened in between other than I just tried to prepare my ass off for this role. And uh -huh. then while we were shooting it on location in Kentucky, uh, on my last day on the set, it was also my biggest scene in the movie. And uh, for some reason, uh, Bruce's agent, who was one of the owners of Triad Artists, mm -hmm. uh, flew out to uh, Kentucky with the head of Warner Brothers, and they were on set that day. Mm -hmm. And I did my big scene. It wasn't that astonishing. You know, it wasn't Amadeus or something, but it was, it was a nice scene. And, yeah. 
And then I said goodbye to everybody and I flew home. And right. uh, I flew home on a Sunday. Monday morning, the agency calls and they want to represent me. Now, I already had the job. They'd already gotten their commission. But the head of the agency had seen me in person doing that scene. And for some reason, he thought, we can do more with this guy. Wow. And, uh, and I started working regularly and never stopped. And I never wrote another word for money. Wow. Until my book. I never, wow. because the TV writing game was done for me because I didn't want to go on staff and they weren't hiring me as a freelancer. But wow. income wise, I never, it, I, there was never a ripple. See now to me, that's why I, I, I believe in, because to me that's destiny that, that, they, that she wasn't willing to represent you, but then the big guy comes in, he sees you, you were meant, this is to me, because you didn't create that situation, that kind of happened for you and kind of opened that door. I don't know, it doesn't matter. But so how did, how did everyone on here wants to know about Deadwood and Supernatural? So we've got to talk about yeah. it. So how did what happen for you? How did what? Deadwood happen for you. Well, flash forward about 18 years and uh, uh, and you're and you're working you're you're a working actor you're I'm a working actor it, i had ups and downs by the time by the by the beginning of the 2000s mm -hmm. i was working frequently but not enough um you know i had had i had had my own series in the early 90s and i thought mm -hmm. well that's it it's never going to go downhill from here and the year after that was canceled was the worst year since I started working. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of lessons here. A lot of lessons. Yeah. I, I got the, uh, I got to the 2000s. In 2001, my daughter was born and I began to realize that I, it was fine for me and my wife, Cecily, if we wanted to crash on other people's sofas or uh, eat tuna and crackers, but it wasn't okay for the baby. And it was the first time ever since 1971 that I felt like I might have to do something else. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I, I went to my agents at the time, different agency. Uh, they'd been very good to me, but, but it just, I was, I was always, I was getting a high percentage of the jobs I auditioned for, but I wasn't auditioning very much. So uh, I decided to try a different agency and, uh, and hope to get out more because I knew that if the more I got out, the more I would work. Um, and I, uh, but I was, I was really thinking, I don't know how to do anything else that makes money. Writing little books on movie stars is not going to do it. Uh, and, and you're still 
writing your George Reeves book this I'm still writing the Reeves book all along the time, except all that the it's, well, I'm still researching it. Right, uh, okay. And, uh, but I'm awful busy with this other stuff, uh, mm -hmm. with acting and, uh, and I'm still occasionally uh, writing a play or something. Nothing's happening with that, but, okay. uh, but I thought I, I might ought to have to, I might ought to figure out something else I can do. And I didn't know what it would be. Uh, uh, my wife kept saying, well, you know, go teach film history at UCLA or something. I'm thinking they got 12, 15 guys over there already doing that. Um, and I don't have any teaching credentials. So mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was very, very nervous. I remember I auditioned for a movie that I thought it was, I was born to play. Great part, great script, and I didn't get it. And I was devastated. Hmm. And then I got a call from the new agents, like two weeks after I signed with them, to go hmm. audition for this show, Dead One. And they sent me the script, and I looked at the audition material, and I thought, this one's mine. I may not get it, but it's mine. I, I had never seen a piece of material that fitted what I knew I could do best as well. And uh, I went in and read for David Milch and Walter Hill. And I had an inkling that maybe it was going okay because I'm reading the script with the casting director, but out of the corner of my eye, I see David and he's leaning forward and he's going. <laughs> I'm like, I think that's good. <laughs> and then I had done very small parts for both of them. I'd done an NYPD Blue for David Milch a few years earlier. 10 years earlier, I had done a very small part for Walter Hill in Geronimo. I didn't even know if they remembered me. And when the audition was over, it was quiet for a second, and then Walter Hill said, well, I'm glad to see you remembered everything I taught you. <laughs> and, uh, and I got the part, uh -huh. and the show went on the air, and for the first time in my life, there were people in the industry who knew who I was. Wow. That when I did go into an audition or a meeting, they didn't need to be brought up to speed as to who I was because it was that kind of show. Um, you know, and I just want to say, you can say you don't believe in destiny and all this again, but not getting that part you really wanted. Oh, if I had gotten that movie. It allowed you to be available for this, this thing that changed movie, your life. I done Dead yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know about destiny, but, uh, it's just things really shiny. I, I think things puzzle pieces fit together the way they're supposed. I don't know. I think the puzzle's meant to come together. That it, it doesn't matter. Well, the so, great thing is, I don't think that movie ever came out. Is that even, so? I don't even know. I don't even remember what it was called. So wow, <laughs> there you go. Okay, so now been forgotten forever. So as, as a huge part of that, of your life and career as that is, 
so many, I mean, as soon as people hear Jim Beaver, Supernatural, Supernatural, so how, did, how did Supernatural happen for you? Well, um, it, was, it was an interesting situation. It was, it was at the end of Deadwood. Mm -hmm. um, things were happening on Deadwood. I realize it's, the show's been off the air for a long time, but I, I don't like to do spoilers. But I, I wasn't coming back for season four of Deadwood. What we didn't realize until sometime later was that nobody else was either. Um, <laughs> uh, we had been picked up, but I wasn't coming back to the show. And I was devastated. I did not want to leave the show. Uh, it was the single greatest thing that had ever happened in my career, and it still is. And, uh, but we were about to finish it I was about to finish it up and mm -hmm. I got an offer to do a single episode of Supernatural. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't, I didn't know anything about the show other than it was two hunky guys chasing demons. It wasn't <laughs> on my radar. It wasn't really on the industry radar. You know, if I had gotten Supernatural instead of Deadwood, there's probably people in the business who still wouldn't know who I was because wow. Deadwood was an HBO show. It was a water cooler show for the industry. Right. Uh, Supernatural, on the other hand, 12, 13 years into it, people in the business were still saying, Supernatural, what's that? Um, wow. You know, I couldn't walk into a shopping mall in Omaha without getting mobbed, but in <laughs> Beverly Hills, nobody ever heard of the show I was on. So, uh, I got offered this one part. Mm -hmm. I had done a, a series in the early 90s for producer Robert Singer. Uh, and he was producing Supernatural. I went in, it was just a single, a single episode. The, mm -hmm. uh, the set designing uh, crew, had, my character's name was just Bobby. And he was an old friend of the family of these two punky guys, Jason Davis. And uh, Bobby, I don't even think he had a last name in the script, but the sign painters on the set had, I, I, my character ran a wrecking yard and they had put up Singer Salvage or Singer Automotive or something like that. It was just a an in joke because the executive producer's name was Bob Singer. And mm -hmm. But then they called me back to do another one the next season and then another one and then another one. And all of a sudden I'm playing a recurring role on the show and my character is stuck being named Bob Singer, which is the name <laughs> of the showrunner. And he didn't even want it. He didn't want, he didn't want a character named after himself and all his writer friends were ragging him. I can't believe you <laughs> a character after yourself. And, uh, so I was Bobby Singer for a couple episodes in the second season and a few more in the third. And all of a sudden the fans just took to the character because it's a great character. He's a great, smart, sassy, sarcastic, loving, tough, uh, sensitive. You are so beloved. Oh my God. Well, <sighs> it's, uh, it's a great, Part because he's a great foil for the two guys. Uh, he's, he's the one who can call them up short on their stupidity. 
and uh, and uh, you know when you've got a couple of handsome young guys who are uh, rather you know, who are very self-sufficient and but also very self-impressed. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm talking about the characters. Uh, it's right. great to have an older kind of veteran sort of guy who can say, you morons or you idiots. Idiots, uh, uh, yes, know, that's your thing. A dumber than you, I have never seen. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's a great counterpoint. And right. I think the, uh, but, and also they imbued the character with a lot of love for these two guys mm -hmm. and, and vice versa. And I think, I think the, in one episode, somewhere in a fourth season or so, I had this line, it was just a throwaway line, family don't end with blood. And it became the watchword for the whole series and for the wow. whole fandom. Wow. And, uh, and so I kind of got to ride that. Wow. So, uh, so that one little episode in 2006 turned into 15 straight years. Unbelievable. Yeah. And I'd do another 15 if they wanted to. Wow. Wow. That's just phenomenal. So yeah. I, I, I just looked at the clock. We've been talking for almost two hours. It's great. And, and it wow. feels like it's been five minutes. But I just want to ask you about a couple of other iconic guest starring roles that you've done wow. that uh, you are so known for, one being Dexter, the other Breaking Bad. Can you tell us a little bit about those experiences? Well, um, you know, I can't. One of the joys in the aftermath of Deadwood and Supernatural was that a lot more people in the business did know who I was. Right. Um, uh, and it was a shock to me because I'd spent a lot of years with, you know, so tell me what you've done. But meanwhile, you, but you are the guy who's going out to the store and getting mobbed wherever you're going. No, I don't get mobbed unless I'm in just the right place at the right moment. Uh, I mean, on one hand, I got mobbed at a Burger King in Helsinki. <laughs> on the other hand, <laughs> I walk down the street in LA and nobody pays any attention. That is so wild. Uh, but if you go to one of those conventions or something, you can't like walk into the room. Oh, if I at a at a fan convention, it's that's a whole other world. That's yeah. uh, th that's insane. Yeah, uh, I I had a couple of occasions where I needed help getting out. Of I, yes, <laughs> but never in a horrible way. Right. Always in a very loving way. Mm -hmm. uh, the fans are fabulous. They're fabulous, and they've made me so happy in my life. That's uh, awesome. But it does. It it only happens in certain situations. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I I probably draw a bigger crowd in Dubuque than I do Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. I can guarantee it. Uh, but it's usually more along the lines of, you can't possibly be Jim Beaver because why would you be here in Dubuque? Right. Uh, but the fact is, I'm lots of places that nobody expects me to be. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but it's, yeah, so I, what I was, what I was leading into was at some point I stopped having to audition all the time. Mm 
I still do it. I still do it. I mean, come on. I'm, there are, you know, there are, there are A-list stars who probably audition if it's yeah. a project they want, they really want badly. Mm -hmm. But I'm no A-list star. I have to audition sometimes for stuff I don't want that badly. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a lot more rare. Right. Uh, I get offered a lot. I don't know if I auditioned for Dexter. I don't really remember much about how I got the part, but what a juicy little what a part it that was, was. A great. I had never watched the show before. Oh, really? Truth is, that may be the only episode I've ever seen. Wow, uh, <laughs> it's a great show, by the way. If you're binging yeah. while you're in pandemic, I you know that I'm not saying anything bad about it. It's just right. there are a zillion shows I've never seen. Right. Um, the, uh, uh, but I really, I really enjoyed getting to sink my teeth into that kind of character. This, there's a, I've sort of fallen, not full length all the way, mm -hmm. but somewhat into a niche of playing gruff but lovable characters. And when, and it, I don't know that it's gotten more rare, but it's always a lot of fun to switch off and play a non-lovable character. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there was a character who kind of looked like he might be gruff but lovable and turned out to be- Horrible. Bastard. And, oh. and, uh, uh, and it, was, it was really fun to do, not so much because he, bad but because the stuff he did was meaty it was uh um it was just great fun to play i've played a thousand sheriffs and homicide cops especially in the days before deadwood when i didn't have a beard um and i love playing those but there's a certain similarity to most of them right and uh and i played a lot of uh uh bobby singer Ellsworth from Deadwood kinds of characters where there's not much polish, but you know, he's got a good heart. Mm -hmm. I played a lot of those mm -hmm. and they're, I enjoy them. I enjoy them immensely. Mm -hmm. But every once in a while, it's nice to play somebody who, you know, eats a baby or something. <laughs> uh, uh, just for a little change of pace. And I didn't eat a baby on Dexter, but uh, um, I was pretty reprehensible. And, yeah, uh, pretty. I was delighted to be told that I would be the only Dexter victim to get wrapped in cellophane without being naked. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, the idea of the idea of, of lying around uh, naked in cellophane for several hours was I, that that didn't appeal to me. I, I tipped my hat to my friend John Lithgow for. They said he was they said he was naked in the cellophane longer than any other actor on the show, and I'm like, oh my god! Even with clothes on, it wasn't fun. Oh God! Well, I can't even imagine. Dexter, you're probably really puzzled right now. <laughs>
And so, and what about Breaking Bad? I mean, now, did you also, had you not seen Breaking Bad at all until? I, I had not seen Breaking Bad until I got hired to do one. Okay. And then I watched a bunch, I think, before I went to work. I'm, I'm a little foggy on that. It was a very weird situation. I was shooting Supernatural. Mm -hmm. We were doing an episode uh, called, and then there were none in which um that's a great film yeah well this was this was um what i remember most about it was everybody was sick the entire cast and crew was down with something akin to pneumonia uh and i mean we were all miserable lots of us were going to hospitals right and and i had this horrible congestion in my throat which worked really well i had to at one point get taken over by some kind of entity and i, I had to talk <laughs> with them real easy to do <laughs> and in the middle of shooting that uh -huh. i got asked to come do breaking bad and i said well i'm shooting this other episode and they said we'll fly you down on a saturday shoot on sunday morning and fly you back sunday night and so that's what I did. Well, I got down there and my throat is still messed up. So I'm, I'm doing this first episode of Breaking Bad where I'm playing Lawson, the gun dealer. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm playing him kind of like this because my throat is still screwed up. But I figure it's, it's, it's one scene in one episode. He buys a gun, that's the, that's the last you'll see of him. Until like a year later, they call me and said, he needs another gun and uh and i go back and i'm thinking i don't know how to do that voice anymore <laughs> so uh all healed up but i you know i i faked my way through it and i think i gradually over the course of breaking bad and better call saul just kind of phased out the voice and and maybe did you ever go back have you seen breaking bad is that a oh, show yeah 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 what once I started watching it, just so I had an idea of what the show was about, mm -hmm. I got hooked on it quickly, and I watched everything. Yeah, how could you not? And and uh, and then I, you know, I got to go back for the the final season, and I uh, I was so happy to do that. And then when Better Call Saul came along, mm -hmm. I was ecstatic that they brought me back for the same character in that. And with Better Call Saul, I knew. You know, they couldn't kill me because it was a prequel. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I, I don't know if I've got any shot at being in the final season of uh, Better Call Saul, but I know I ain't dead. <laughs> That's a good thing. Yeah. Jim, I, I, I could talk to you all night. I mean, your stories are fantastic and you've had such a storied life. So before we go, though, this thing about George Reeves. So yeah. the book's still in process? This book is still in process. I just, I just finished writing chapter three the night before last. And uh, uh, it sounds weird that, I mean, I've been working on this book for 43 years. Thank but I only started writing in the last few months. In, oh, okay. Now, are you... In research up until then. Do you have, I won't ask you what it is, but do you have a conclusion? Yeah. You it's do. not the conclusion I started out with. 
It is or it isn't. It is not the conclusion I started out. It is not. I started out with the um, the popular opinion, the urban legend opinion, that he had been murdered. That is not my opinion now. Wow. But uh, I will state that although I'm fairly convinced of what I think happened, mm-hmm. and I've got a lot of evidence to back it up, I bet you do. I think that no one will ever know for certain. No one is left alive from then. Right. Uh, all of, if if frankly, I don't know how anybody could find any more evidence than I have found. Do you think? Jim, that there, I mean, it's sounding to me like there's a movie in here. No, um, there's already been one. Um, uh, ben Affleck did a movie called Hollywood Land, which is about this story. Uh, yeah, I and I was, I was the biographical advisor on that. Wow. And, uh, uh, but I'll tell you how smart I am. Uh, about, oh, about 20 years ago, I got invited to a meeting at Universal mm-hmm. and they had heard about my book project and wanted to talk to me about uh, buying the rights to make a movie. Mm-hmm. And I went to the meeting, I listened to them, listened to their ideas, and I said, this may sound weird, but I don't think there's a movie here. Uh, I just don't see it. Not the kind of movie that I think would be truthful. And so they thanked me and I thanked them. and. And then, if, then 10 years later, uh, Alan Coulter directs a wonderful movie with Ben Affleck that I think, I, it's not perfect. It's not at all a perfect movie, but I think they did as well as anybody in Hollywood was going to do with that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a lot of Reeves fans were disappointed with it because it didn't come down solid on one possibility for his death or another that it didn't go into depth about his charitable work uh that it that it made him seem less maybe heroic than they would like to think a lot of things like that but the truth is uh nobody in hollywood was going to make the perfect biographical movie uh and if they had it would have been 45 years long um the uh, uh, I, 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 even though I was a technical advisor on the film, there are a lot of things I did not appreciate that they were unable or unwilling to change, mainly unable, because they were very, very devoted to getting it as, as accurate and authentic as they could. Um, there were some things that stood in the way of that, but some of them just political things with the studio. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I'm proud that I was able to help them a little bit, uh, uh, nudging them towards authenticity. But okay, so Jim, last question. Yeah. I think the last time I asked you this question, your answer actually came to pass. Is there a role, I, you've done a lot of stage work in addition to all of this TV and, and movie work. Is there a role that you haven't played yet that you, whether film or TV or stage, is there something that you covet at this at this time in your life that you'd like to, to tackle? There are three. Okay, let's hear. And and there have always been a few, but they've changed because I've aged out of a lot of them. 
I'm, I'm, nobody's going to hire me to play Hamlet. But that was that was on the list at one time. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm probably too old for Richard the Third, but I might I'm you know somebody you you might be able to fudge that. But um, at my current age, uh, at some point I'd like to tackle Lear. It's 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 Mount Everest stacked on top of Mount Everest, but uh, you know I'm I, I love Shakespeare so much, uh, and that's the one big role that's still right there for me to that I'm still young enough to maybe survive it, <laughs> and I'm old enough to know a little about what it's about. Um, my other uh, playwright hero is Eugene O'Neill, and I would kill to play Larry Slade in The Iceman Cometh, or uh, James Tyrone Sr. in Long Day's Journey into Night. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to do Jamie Jr. in Long Day's Journey, but I got too old for it. I came close once. I came close to playing Sr. Uh, a year or so ago, but I had a little health problem that, that I couldn't I couldn't do the job, and uh, so somebody else got to do it. And but I haven't given up. If we ever had plays again, uh, that's what I really thought was going to happen this year. I had finished. I thought I was finishing Supernatural, finishing the movie, and I didn't. I was no longer part of a show. Uh huh. So I thought, I mean, I'm going to go to New York and do some plays because I finally got freedom to do it. And then wow. came along and then the boys came along and I'm recurring on that. So I'll squeeze one in as soon as we're able, because I miss it. I miss the stage a lot. People said, don't forget to ask them about the ranch. I just remembered that. Huh. Uh, what a cast that is. Yeah, boy, you want to have some fun. If you're a guy who's come up on movies and Westerns the way I have, get on a show with Sam Elliott. I mean, oh, yeah. he is just he is everything you could imagine positive you could ever guess from watching him on screen. He's just he's one of the best human beings on earth and he's a joy to work with and and I just I love him. And I love working with my uh lovely on-screen alcoholic wife Deborah Jo Rupp. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I had, uh, it's such wonderful people on that show. I had, a, I had a great time. I'm not all that crazy about sitcoms mm -hmm. because I, I tend to gravitate more toward the more dramatic stuff. Although didn't you do like a couple of years, was it Third Rock from the Sun? You did a- I did, I did Third yeah. Rock for a while. Uh -huh. uh, my, first, my first series ever was a, a sitcom called Thunder Alley with Ed Asner. And I love those. I had I've always had great fun, but just my artistic inclinations lean toward drama. Right. And uh, uh, but I've always I've always had wonderful times on on the comedies, and I love doing comedy. It's just it's a different kind of beast. Right. Right. So, um, Jerry Jerry Jewell just came on. You're Deadwood Coast. Oh. Hi, Jerry. Oh, darling, Jerry. Oh. I love you, sweetheart. I hope you're well. Yes, do I. Jerry just moved and had, well, not just, but she's she's had a lot of life. She had a challenge 
she ended up like hurting herself and somebody saved her and got her to the emergency room recently and yeah yeah oh I, i'm i'm hoping you're better darling me too jerry anyway jim thank you so so much it's always so lovely to sit down with you and i look forward to the next time we're actually doing it in person with sarah and we're yeah. someplace fun and yeah well you're you're a joy to be interviewed by but you're oh. also so damn much fun just in general so thank you Thank you so much. I can't wait to see you guys in person. Good luck with everything that's happening. Stay safe. I'm so happy to hear about Maddie and her life in New York. My daughter's in New York. Maybe we can connect them. And um, thanks so much, Jim. See you guys tomorrow on Shooting the Shit. Take care. Good night.